Hey, this is Micah Bosworth. I'm the pastor here at Ridgepoint, and this is our sermon podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. Hope this is an encouragement to you. Hope it helps to build your faith. And I hope it helps you to see that God is working in your life. Enjoy the message. I've said often uh, through Ephesians there's just so much here. You could probably take each verse and preach one message a verse and just be in this for years. Uh, and this, just the thoughts of uh, everything. And this past, well, last week, last week in my study, uh, and of course, last week we covered verses 11 through 22 of chapter number two. And today we're going to be looking at uh, chapter two again, but specifically we're going to look at the last few verses, cha- uh, verses 19 through 22, because uh, this is just one of those instances where uh, I, I couldn't, I, I don't even know how to cover everything that we could have from verses 11 through 22, especially what the, the verses we're going to cover today signify. I don't know how I could have even covered all of that in 45 minutes last week. And so, um, so we're going to go back to those last few verses and, and really just see from the context of scripture as a whole, what temple means. Because uh, what we read in verses 19 through 22 uh, are just like, <clears throat> I hope what they'll do for you is what they have done for me consistently every time I come to it uh, and come to this thought that it'll like blow our minds and fill our hearts and just motivate us uh, to do more for God and live more for him. Because uh, what we see in verses 19 through 22 and all uh, that that means in the whole of Scripture uh, and then ultimately what that means for us today, it's just like, okay, it's good. We're going to get into it, all right? So Ephesians chapter number 2 and starting in verse 19, starting in verse 19, the Bible says, Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we just want to ask you to speak to us. Lord, your word is a living book, and it's active, and it is powerful. It can pierce all the way down to the dividing of our soul and spirit. And God, we ask that it would do just that today. May what we learn, what we cover, just uh, open our hearts, really fill our hearts, Lord, uh, with amazement and wonder at how you worked in our lives at the moment of salvation. And Lord, how you worked in this earth from the beginning all the way till now. I pray, Lord, truly that this would be something that this drives and motivates us to live more in light of our gospel identity. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and how it can speak to us. And we pray that you would just speak to us each on an individual level, but also, Lord, corporately as a church, would you speak to us? And we pray that you would be ultimately lifted up in all that's said and done right now during the time of the message, and Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what, um, what comes to your mind when I, I say the word church? 
when I say the word church. Most of the time, or I, I guess I could ask it this way, how do we often define church? Um, most of the time, a lot of us, when we think of church, the first thing that pops into our mind is a building, uh, like where we go to church, right? Uh, I go to church at such and such address. I go to church at the Grange, right? Okay, we think of a physical location uh, when we, when we uh, hear the word church, and it's a little bit more uh, it's a little easier for people uh, in our situation where we are a church plant and uh, sometimes we're not in the same location. We get displaced and have to have church in a park or in a garage or something like that. It's a little easier for, easier for us to not necessarily think of church as a physical location, but even if our minds don't, don't naturally think that way, we often talk that way in the sense of, I go to church at this place, I go to church at this location, church starts at this time, right? It, it, maybe we even think of church as a service itself. Uh, that, but church, church is much more than this. Uh, and, and what I want us to see is that the word temple for the first century Christians had a very similar, very similar uh, connotation to it. For first century people, for Jews, for, for, for Christians, and even for unbelievers and people who practiced other religions, they saw the temple as a specific location, uh, a specific building. In Ephesus, Paul writing to the uh, people in Ephesus, we've talked about this, that they had this huge temple of Artemis or of the goddess Diana. And so they would have seen a temple like that and think, thought of temple as a physical location where someone goes to worship and encounter their God. But what Paul tells us here and in other passages, but really here uh, more extensively in Ephesians is that the idea of temple, the idea of temple is much more than just a building. And to fully understand and see this, we're gonna take some time this morning and we're gonna walk through the story of the Bible following temple, okay? That's what I want us to see today. Uh, if you recall, Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians People that he had, uh, he had spent three years teaching. Uh, do you remember in Ephesians chapter, or not Ephesians, in Acts chapter 20, in our Acts series, we saw uh, Acts chapter 20, he's about to head back to, down to Jerusalem, his final time uh, before he gets arrested and all of that. And he stops and talks to the elders of the, the church at Ephesus. And something that he said to them was he said, hey, don't forget I didn't shun to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Uh, so, so the reason I bring that up is because when, when the Ephesian church would have read the book of Ephesians, they would have had some Old Testament context and first uh, just like real world context to the word temple that when they read this, what we now call, because there weren't chapter and verses divisions when it was originally written, it was just a letter. What we now call verses 19 through 22 of chapter number two, when they would have read that section, their mind would have immediately thought of a certain thing or certain ideal that would have just come alive in what Paul's saying. And I want us to really understand that this morning as we see what their idea of temple would have been. And as we travel through the whole of scripture, uh, what, what that means for us today. Okay, so you ready? Buckle up, because <laughs> uh, we're going to take a little bit of a trip to get there. But by the end of the message, I, I pray we'll be able to answer these questions. What is temple? What is the significance of temple? 
where is the temple and what does that mean for my life today in 2022? I, I hope that by the end of the message, we'll be able to answer those questions. And we're going to let, there's not going to be a lot of personal illustrations. We're going to let the Bible illustrate the Bible, okay, today. So that's what I, we'll have some pictures to see this. But what I want us to recognize, first of all, is that we need to understand that from the beginning, God has always wanted a relationship with man. From the beginning, he has always wanted a relationship with man. And, and here is the real biblical sense of it all. God created man into a space. In the beginning, God created, and he created the heaven and the earth and everything, and then he created man into a space. And that space was called the Garden of Eden. Okay, right? He, he, they were created in this space called the Garden. And God in this garden walked with them and fellowshiped with them in the garden. This is the first picture or idea that I want us to see of temple. Uh, the first dwelling place of God on earth. The first meeting point of men with God was in the garden, okay? Uh, so, so in the, again, in the first century mind, what they're thinking, all the context is what they're thinking is temple is where God and man meet. So their idea already 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 goes all the way back to uh, creation, where the first place of where God and man met. It goes all the way back to creation because metaphorically and practically, the garden was the first place where God and man walked together. But then the fall happened, right? Man sinned and was then placed outside of the garden. Why? Well, because God was dwelling in the garden. God was dwelling in the garden and his presence is there and now man has fallen dead to God spiritually because of sin. And man is now separated from God. And the Bible tells us that they were set outside of the garden and there's an angel that's guarding the garden that they would not be able to enter. And so because of the fall, now man cannot have temple. What, what I mean by that is they now can no longer have relationship and fellowship with God because of sin. But God pursues man and shows him about atoning sacrifice, okay? Uh, atoning sacrifice that would cover temporarily their sin so that they could have relationship, but they could only have a relationship with God based upon the, the promise of some future atonement and sacrifice for their sin. Uh, the lamb sacrifice that took place in Genesis and that uh, God covered them, uh, covered their nakedness with the skins, uh, that, that is not, uh, that, that didn't take away their sin or remove their sin. It temporarily covered it, okay? Uh, and then you have, fast forward to Abraham. And we see Abraham when he's chosen by God and then God asks him to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And we see a picture of uh, Abraham. He says, God will provide himself a lamb and God does. And it's a picture of what ultimately God would do with his own son. But uh, you see uh, you see that picture again of the lamb and the atoning sacrifice that has to take place for this relationship to take place between God and man. And then you move forward to the children of Israel, okay, in bondage, a picture of being separated from God, and then the exodus. So they're in bondage to the Egyptians, and then there's this exodus, and remember when they were taken out of the wilderness, 
they had what we called the Passover. Do, do we remember this? If, if not, this is what it is. It's, um, it was a picture of salvation in Jesus and of God bringing his people to himself, rescuing them out of bondage and slavery. But what they had to do was they had to take their best lamb and, the, and kill it and uh, put the blood of it on the doorposts and the death angel would pass over that house if he saw the blood so that no one in that house, the firstborn, would not die. Okay, And so it was a picture again of how blood, atoning sacrifice, had to take place for God and man to have a relationship and, uh, and for God to rescue his people. So then, after that takes place, they get into the wilderness, and God, still wanting to dwell with man, when he brings them out of the bondage of Egypt, what does God instruct for them as they came out of the wilderness? They're being made a new ma- nation, they're no longer slaves of Egypt, and no longer just the family of Abraham, but they're actually now a massive group of people that he will organize a nation under his rule as their uh, God and king and savior and shepherd and father. A lot of times we think of those things as all being separate, but in a theocracy, which is what was being set up for the nation of Israel, God is all of those things to them. And, uh, and all of that uh, uh, is said to be what is going to take place, but God instructs them to construct what we know as the tabernacle, okay? So temple first was the garden, Okay, and then God's showing this blood sacrifice that I want to have a relationship with you, but because of sin separating us, there is something, that, follow with me, okay? We're gonna get there, and I, I, it's gonna be awesome when we get to what this means, okay? But we gotta, we gotta take the steps to get there. That uh, this relationship is forming, God is teaching his people about how the sac- atoning sacrifice is uh, going to cover for their sin and pay for their sin. And then he instructs them to build a tabernacle, a dwelling place for him, And the idea uh, for them was that they were going to build up this tabernacle uh, where they could give their offerings. The idea of special offerings where the worship of God would be accomplished and the presence of God would be sought after. And in the tabernacle, and this is a picture of what the tabernacle would have looked like, it was just a fancy tent, really, because it had to be mobile. Uh, the tabernacle was something that they would build up and inside the tabernacle, just as the temple, and we talked about a little bit last week, there was inside the tabernacle what's called the Holy of Holies. Uh, and they built the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, all as God had instructed them. And then there came a moment, okay, there came a moment in Israel's time when they built the tabernacle where God came in and occupied that tabernacle. There was smoke. It was, an, it was an astounding thing to see. And God had already made his presence manifest to Moses in the burning bush and to the children of Israel through the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. But now this image of tabernacle and this inner place where nobody could go, God entered into it. This is all God's infinite grace and love being put into an earthly symbol or picture that human minds could wrap their minds around that God is helping man to understand, I want to dwell among you. Uh, but he can't because of sin. We're separated. That's, that's the holy of holies. That is where God's presence is. And there must be a bloodshed and death and atoning for that sin. And they had to go through the certain sacrifice and the high priest had to do a certain thing and could only go in at a certain time to change the bread. And, and this 
uh, follows through all even into the temple. Uh, but it was, it was a very carefully designed thing to really just teach them this. The veil that, that separates me, my presence from you represents that there is something between us that, that separates us and only an atoning sacrifice can then pay for that to take place for someone to come into my presence, okay? So this is all a picture that's leading up to, but God is really saying this uh, because of uh, where it's located. He's saying, I want to dwell among you. Uh, it would have been in the center of the camp. It would have, they would have camped all along the sides of the tabernacle. Every single time they uh, brought it up and then moved to a different location and set it back down, they would encamp around it. And God, in doing, having them do this, is really saying this, I am the center of everything and I love you. So let's have a place where heaven meets earth. Let's have a place where man meets God, where I can know you and you can know me and we can go forward together and you can find your whole Hub of identity and purpose right here at this point where God dwells on earth. So the tabernacle, it follows through the wilderness for 40 years. Every time they moved, they packed it up and they set it back up wherever they camped. And it continues on with this. Well, then they get to the promised land. Um, but they, they get to a point in the promised land where they're tired of God as their king. Okay? They, they start to see other nations who have a physical uh, manly king on the throne and because of all the uh, nation, other nations having that and God being intangible, uh, they, they're a little jealous of other nations and the prestige that comes with having an earthly king. So they ask God for a man to be king and God eventually gives them a man by the name of Saul. And then after Saul, he gives them David. Okay, Now David... He decided during his rule that he wanted to uh, turn this tabernacle, this tent, uh, into a, from a tent into a permanent building. And so he goes to God and asks if he can build the temple. And, and God actually tells David, no, you can't because you fought too many wars and shed too much blood. But, uh, but you can get ready to build it and your son can build it. And this temple, uh, it, it's going to be uh, a bigger, it's going to be bigger than the tabernacle, and it's going to be a more permanent edifice. It, it's the difference between what we would see as like a tent that we sleep in for a few nights versus a permanent house in which to dwell. Uh, it, it's going to go from this thing that could be mobile and torn down very easily uh, to something that is going to stand firm, uh, built. And the idea continues to be that this is where God meets man where heaven and earth meet, where man finds connection point with God, where man f can find reconciliation with God, where man escapes condemnation and death and destruction and all the things that sin and separation would create, the tabernacle and then the temple, it represents that for the people of Israel. And then they have a moment, much like with the tabernacle, they have a moment, it's in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5, where they dedicate the temple. Okay, and, um, and it, it's an amazing thing. Like they're, they're singing, it says the trumpeters and the singers are all as one voice and they're, they're just lifting up praises to God and then God himself comes and occupies the temple. God comes down onto the temple and God comes to dwell. And in all of Old Testament history, this was the high moment for Jewish history. They would look to this moment. It, this was the high moment because it was the time where God came among men and dwelled 
in the new temple. This was the pinnacle now of their national pride. This was the pinnacle of their national identity and power and prominence. A sense to the people uh, of Israel that they were the people of God because now we have seen the presence and the power of God physically. But what happened was Israel started to, uh, they started to make it of none effect. They really started to prostitute this and, and turned it into a national pride thing. And they made it to where they were better than other people. Well, we have God dwelling in our midst. We're better than everyone else. And that was never God's intent. God's, God's intent was that they would be humble, knowing they did not deserve the presence of God in their midst. And God's intent was to dwell among them to show himself to the world. Uh, God wanted to use Israel as a light, a city on a hill, so that all the nations of the earth, so that when the other nations were sacrificing their children or their spouses or whatever in idol worship, when other nations were doing that, that then they could look to Israel and see their God wasn't demanding things like that. Their, their God was actually loving them and caring for them and shepherding them and blessing them and sustaining them and lifting them up. The whole idea was that through humble, sinful Israel who also needed to be saved, that through them, they would lift up the true God and the world would look at Israel and say, we want him. <laughs> we want uh, we don't want Dagon or Diana. We don't want those gods. We want Jehovah God. That was the whole idea. But Israel had turned this meeting place of God on earth that represented reconciliation and relationship. It became a stench to the nostrils of God. I, ha I have a picture of Solomon's temple, but uh, it, it was bigger. But they had turned it into something that was just a, a terrible smell in the nostrils of God. In fact, some kings, they would desecrate this very temple. Solomon's wives uh, led him astray and he started to, remember a thousand wives that might do that to you, okay, Solomon, his wives led him astray and uh, he started making a place at the temple for the worship of other gods and the wives brought their gods in and the temple is now no longer just about Jehovah God and man. In fact, it gets so bad that in Isaiah, God tells them to stop it all. Like God basically tells the children of Israel, stop going to church, stop sacrificing, stop worshiping. It, it's just awful, the, the way that you're doing this. It was supposed to be a relationship, but it had uh, become machinery and ritualistic, and uh, it, it wasn't what it was meant to be. But eventually, this temple that got built gets obliterated. Uh, in, in Israel history, uh, the captivity takes place. Babylonians and the Assyrians, they come in and they start to take people out, and in the process of doing so, the temple gets destroyed uh, so if you're Jewish, you now have no national identity. In their mind, we, we now have no identity. That was the thing that like made us different. And now we don't have that. And there were still remnants of people who loved God and worshiped God uh, and who were still submissive to God in their hearts like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, people like that. But, uh, but there was no place, no meeting place of heaven and earth. So God was out there, but God wasn't close, okay? Uh, and, and you had no capacity to go to God or relate to God because that's what the temple was. You had no sense that God was near. If they heard the prophets, they knew that God was still in control, but they didn't have a sense that he was close or that there was a relationship because there was no longer a temple. Well, 
If you know Jewish history, you know that some remnants of Israelites start to come back to the land and they start to rebuild the temple. Uh, And there's some Jews that come back from captivity and they start to reconstruct uh, the temple and this this is the book of Ezra you can read about that in the book of Ezra they they started construction but it tells us that construction stopped <laughs> they started to do it and then didn't finish it for years it laid unfinished and they're discouraged so then some prophets Haggai and Ezekiel they prophesy and say you need to finish it and specifically Haggai he says your houses look great but look at God's house like what are you doing let's rebuild this and then uh and then we see it become finished Nehemiah you read the book of Nehemiah they come up they build back up the walls and they build everything up and the temple is now rebuilt and the people are coming to it but here's the difference the temple is rebuilt but God has never entered it there there is no moment like uh, with the tabernacle and the smoke and, and with the temple and, and uh, 2 Chronicles 5 and God inhabiting it, that, that never takes place with this temple. And so uh, this is about 400 years before uh, Jesus comes and we he- see that 400 years of silence. There was never a time like before where God came and indwelled the temple. The temple is rebuilt, but the covenantal relationship part of it was never restored the book of malachi consistently tells them this it's like uh you're doing the sacrifices but you're robbing god and they're like no we're not robbing god and they're like arguing with god about it and malachi the prophet is trying to tell you like you have the temple but nothing uh of the relationship and the covenant that's supposed to be taking place none of that is taking place and they're arguing with god uh, about it but in that time, the Assyrian Empire that believes their king is God. Uh, uh, so you have this man named Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? Uh, he comes to Jerusalem. He thinks he's God. In fact, he desecrates the very temple, gets up on the temple mount, and says, I am the son of God, okay? So uh, he, he just desecrates the temple and, and takes over the temple and controls the temple. Uh, and, and the temple mount... For during this time of history and even today, the Temple Mount always seems to be where a power struggle ended up. Whoever occupies the temple is in control. At least that's how they saw it and, and even today how they see it. In fact, today, the Muslims occupied the Temple Mount and the Jews, uh, they, they, they get to what, we, what they called the Wailing Wall. We call it the Wailing Wall, and it's, I, I think I have a few. So today, this is what the temple looks like. It's a Muslim temple up on the mount, and then uh, near it, you have this wall where all of the Jews of today are now near the wall, praying against the wall, and, and like crying out uh, for God and, and, and sending out these prayers. And the reason they're at that wall, the Western Wall, is because to them... That's the wall that's closest to where the Holy of Holies sat. They're trying to get as close as they're allowed to. The Muslims won't allow the Jews to be on the Temple Mount. They're trying to get as close as they can and that they are allowed to, to the presence of God in their minds. But what they don't know or what they don't realize is God does not inhabit that Temple Mount, that specific location. And and we'll get to that in just a moment. But, But under Herod, okay, under Herod, 
We looked at these last week. Under Herod, there's this huge temple built. He, he makes it even more ornate and, and big, and, and it takes up a huge area of the town. They built a huge wall edifice around it. In fact, this is a scale model you can see of how big the temple mount was to the rest of Jerusalem. Herod just built up this massive thing uh, to uh, really to occupy it himself and be in charge uh, just as Antiochus Epiphanes did in the Assyrian Empire. If you control the temple, you control the Jews. So Herod was in charge now and was occupying this area. And under Herod, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been appointed over the Temple Mount and its dealings. And they had turned what was supposed to be uh, what was supposed to be God, where God and man met and where heaven and earth met. The Pharisees and the Sadducees turned this, this idea in this area into a repulsive thing to God again. But at the time, it was the hub of commerce, the hub of fake worship, the hub of national identity and politics and power. It all centered right there on the Temple Mount. So that's their idea. And then in walks this man named Jesus. <laughs> Jesus now comes onto the scene. He does two things in his lifetime that turns this part of the world upside down. And uh, one, one thing was he walks up the steps to the temple and he starts turning over tables. You remember this? He, he throws over tables and he, it says he pulls out the whip. Like he, he is throwing, it, it, he, he acts like he owns the place. And the reason is he did. He does, okay? He owns the place because of who he is. He is God. Uh, but the first century minds thought God was going to come because he said, I will come and occupy my temple. That was one thing that they were looking forward to when they rebuilt the temple. But they, they thought God was going to come and occupy the temple and set up a new kingdom. And that was going to begin a new day where everything would be made right and Rome would be conquered and Jerusalem was lifted up again and their national pride was once again, again going to be, we have God and no one else does. That was what they were thinking but that's not what happened. Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple. He went about healing and teaching and then he came again and cleansed the temple again. And then at the end of his ministry, eventually because of all the stirring and what takes place, the controversy, he then is taken, he's nailed to a cross and bloodshed, atonement is made by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But uh, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? We, we mentioned this last week, but the veil was torn from top to bottom between everywhere else and the Holy of Holies. The veil was torn. What does that tell us? That tells us that in that moment, something dramatic has changed about the idea of temple. Something dramatic has changed about the idea of temple. When Jesus cleansed the temple, uh, he says, this temple is going to be destroyed. Now, what they didn't realize was he wasn't talking about the temple mount. He was talking about himself. This temple is going to be destroyed. You're going to destroy this temple. But in three days, I'm going to raise this temple back up. Okay, so uh, the stone edifice temple, this constructed temple, he did say it's going to be destroyed forever. But this temp temple, me, I'm going to raise it again. Okay? When he references himself as temple, 
that is a reference to his deity. That is a reference to him as God. What he's saying is this, I'm not going to where God dwells. I am God dwelling. That's what he's saying. I am temple. Up to this point, temple was a physical location. But now Jesus is saying he is the temple. Where can man meet God? In Christ, in Jesus. Me, I am where man meets God is what Jesus is saying. So the idea of, t- of temple transforms from a building to Jesus. But then Jesus gives us the apostles of P- Paul and Peter and James and John uh, who tell us that not only is Jesus the temple, but when we accept Christ, he has sent us the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus talking to his disciples said, uh, look, this temple is going away, but I'm going to send you the comforter. I'm going to come into you and dwell in you. What does that mean? That means now, like, you're a temple. <laughs> I'm a temple. So, so now, today, where does heaven meet earth? Where today does God make his dwelling place? Like in the garden, and in the tabernacle, and in the temple, and in Jesus Christ, where does God dwell? In you, in me, in us. Right? (laughs) This is awesome, okay? Like, where do people who don't know God meet God? At church. No, wrong, and right. But why is that true? Because all of the little temples of God meet together. We are all part of the temple, whole temple, fitly framed together, as it says in Ephesians. Is, is there any, if there is any hope for anyone out there who doesn't know God to meet God, you are the point where heaven meets earth. You are the point where God has come to dwell, where he will manifest himself to bring himself glory and to see others encounter him and see him and know him through Jesus Christ. You are the temple. And if you're a temple, that means that the power center of your life, the identity center of your life, the purpose drive of your life, the place of reconciliation and forgiveness, all of that happens between you and Jesus right here. That's what that means. This is why the gospel is so significant. It completely changed everything to the first century mind when they hear this. And it can change everything in our lives if we let it. Because once we fully understand all of that, that God has always wanted to dwell and have a relationship with his people, and he did so in the garden, but man, because of the fall, separated it, and yet God pursued and showed how through atoning sacrifice, he would restore that relationship, and yet even leading up to the ultimate sacrifice, he consistently showed them picture after picture through the tabernacle and the temple that he still wanted to dwell with mankind and today that all takes place in us when we fully understand all of that then it makes some of the stuff that we talked talked about in the last few weeks make that much more sense like we have access to god why because where you go 
God goes with you. (laughs) You have access to God because he is dwelling within you. You have access to God by the work of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit that indwells you. We, we have acceptance. This principle of temple, as we talked about last, last week, it eradicates all human divisions. All divisions are now eradicated. Do you remember the wall? We talked about on Herod's temple, and, and last week they talked, uh, it said that uh, Jesus has broken down the wall of partition between us. The, what, what Paul is saying is, hey, Gentiles, you remember that wall? Remember how political and divisional and murderous Really, that whole system was and how much the Jews hated you, that's not how God sees you. Uh, He's saying Israel had it all wrong. Israel was supposed to open its arms to the nations to welcome them to God, but Israel said, no, we are God's people. You can't come. And Jesus came in and blew up the Jew system and that's why they killed him. That's why they came after him. It's just as if Jesus went in, uh, in the way he was speaking and ultimately what he did on the cross and ripped down the curtain of the Holy of Holies and looked at all the Gentiles and said, come to God. That's what took place. The Jews, they were, they were venomously angry at that kind of talk and sentiment. And that's why they wanted Jesus dead because in their minds, uh, he was a, blasphemy to their, a blasphemer to their power and their identity and their proud, arrogant connectivity to God. Remember, that's their idea that we have access to God and no one else does, but that was not God's idea. God's idea was, I'm going to use you to bless everybody. I'm going to use you to bring everybody to me. Israel's idea was exclusive and God's arms yet were open to everybody. Anybody who will come is accepted, not by their own doing, but by the fact that they are exclusively trusting in the work and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are accepted, everyone is, and all of our differences are fitly framed together in a beautiful display of God dwelling on this earth. What better display of God's presence on earth is there than the people, than that people of all shapes, colors, languages, political affiliations, all of that are all loving and accepting each other. That's why Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. What more beautiful of a display of God's presence is there on earth than that all of these people with differences love and accept each other and worship the same God together. We are in the family of God. And with that comes certain advantages and amazing blessings, many of which we've already gone over in our study in Ephesians, that we have all spiritual blessings and all forgiveness at our disposal because of who we are in Christ. But this isn't just something, the, the idea of temple isn't just something that gives us advantages. When we fully understand what temple is and what it stands for, the meeting place of God and man, uh, the, where heaven meets earth, where God dwells, it should also change, not just the way we think about ourselves, but it should change the way that we live daily. It, it really should. So uh, let me close with just a few applications that this can mean for our lives today. Now, you could preach each and every one of these uh, applications as a whole message themselves, but I'm just gonna give them very quickly. First of all, this is not something we strive to be, okay? Remember, we're talking about gospel identity. This is who you are. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you're not striving to be a temple where God dwells. You are a temple where God dwells. This is who you 
are. In Christ, our gospel identity tells us we are the temple of the Lord, both individually and corporately. So, with that in mind, may we commit to the Lord that we will rely on his spirit to daily conform us by the renewing of our minds so that we can live holy and acceptable lives. So that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can be a holy temple. A holy temple. In that same vein, be on guard. (laughs) Satan would love to desecrate the temple of God. He would. Be sober, be vigilant, Peter said. For your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, he may devour. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know this? Where, where do we get the idea of sanctification, of holy living? Uh, why does the New Testament say flee fornication? Why do we take a stand against sexual sin? Why do we do that? Because this is the temple. Why does Satan tempt us in ways that would desecrate God's temple? Why is spiritual battle sometimes so intense? Here's why, because you're a temple. You are the dwelling place of God. And just like empire after empire wanted possession of God's temple to show that they had power, so today Satan still wants possession of God's temple. So be on guard and commit to the Lord that you will rely on his spirit to remain a holy temple and flee fornication and all of those things that might desecrate this dwelling place of God. Another way that we could respond to this message would be take time to thank God for all that being a temple means for you today. Because of what Christ has done, we have access to the Father like we talked about last week. We have acceptance. We are acceptable and accepted by God and we have advantages that those without Christ don't have. So thank the Lord for these things. But don't let it fill you with pride. Uh, Don't let it be, I have God and I'm better than those that don't. don't. Don't be like the Jews. God is inhabiting in me and with us and I have access to God and I am better because of it. No, 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 no. Just like the Jews, God is inhabiting this temple so that others might see it and say, I want that. And, and like God, may our arms be open to everybody that might come to encounter Jesus Christ. Temple. Where God meets man. Once a garden, then a tent, then a building. But then the temple, Jesus, God himself in the flesh, dwelling among us on this earth. He sent us the Holy Spirit, God's own spirit, who indwells each and every one of us that believe. You are a temple. We are the temple. I pray that this astounding truth would blow our minds, (laughs) fill our hearts, and motivate us to live holy lives so that those who do not know Christ could look at our lives and say, whoa, the presence of God is there, and I want that. Thank you so much for joining us. A special thanks to those that give generously to our ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. 
For more information about our ministry, check out our website at WenatcheeChurch.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, you can share it with your friends, hit the share button or take a screenshot and share it on your social media, and tag us at Wenatchee Church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.